Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 171. Today is February 6th, 2016. I'm your host, John Pagliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, this has been another incredibly volatile week. I'm going to have to find a better way to describe this volatility because I know I sound like a broken record. In today's podcast, I want to give you a, a bit of a market update, but I, I really want to talk about the overall concept of sector rotation, why it's so important, why it takes place, and then, you know, what you should be looking for, not only in today's market, but, you know, hey, if you're listening to this podcast five years down the road, sector rotation is going to apply because it's always a key factor that you need to look, to learn to identify if you want to be able to see what the coming trends are and, you know, consequently, if you want to profit from the stock market. So this show today is going to be all about sector rotation, and then I'll be throwing in some market commentary as we go. So just as an overall personality of this market, now I always talk about personality because remember, the stock market isn't about balance sheets or about profit and loss and fundamentals. I mean, yeah, sure, it's about all those things, but it's no more about those things than football is just about blocking and tackling. Right. I mean, there's a whole lot more to it. The stock market, at the end of the day, it all comes down to human nature. The stock market or any type of investment vehicle, it's all about transactions that occur between at least two people. And when we're looking at the United States stock market or the global stock markets, we're talking about literally the interaction of billions of people. And so I think the best way to look at the market is to look at it as if it's a living organism. It has a personality because there are people behind every trade and every transaction. Now, since about 2013, uh, maybe even longer, maybe even going back to when they ramped up, I think, the third round of quantitative easing in 2012, going back to about that period, the personality of this market has been one of resilience. Every time the market dipped down maybe 3 or 4 or 5%, Large institutional investors came in, they bought on those dips, they, they bought when the prices you know, were low, when they were on sale, and then consequently over the period of the next following weeks and months, the market would go on to make all new time highs. Then, you know, there'd be a little bit of trouble, some bad news, the market would pull down 3 or 4 or 5%, and then boom, people would come in, mostly large institutional investors that buy on the dip, and then within a few weeks or months, again, the market would go on to make all-time new highs. That was the personality of the market. That stopped around the summer of 2015. So now we're more than six months into this new market that's taken a different shape. We went from one of constantly making new highs to where the market looked like it was rolling over, but we didn't know it was going through a long consolidation period. The whole first half of 2015 was a market that we saw that was really just trading in a very stable zone. It would get up around 2100, you know, 2130 on the high side, and then it would dip down maybe around to, to 2000, just back and forth, back and forth. Very much stuck in that trading zone. Well, that hasn't been the case at all in 2016. This has been a market that has had extreme volatility and volatility on the downside. 2015 in and of itself was also a very volatile year, but we had the 2130 on the high as far as the S&P went, and then about that kind of 2000 was a reliable support level. So it would be very volatile, but it would stay within those zones. Well, we're not seeing that now. Since December, so for about the past eight weeks, this market has consistently made lower highs, lower lows, 
Now, we can't be positive, but to me, that sure looks like the market has rolled over and that we are definitely moving in to, if not maybe a bear market, at least a long-term correction. Back in August, when the markets first fell apart, it was very abrupt. It was very acute. It was what we called a flash crash. Not only did the market crash major percentages in single days, but it fell double digits over the period of, you know, less than a week, about four or five trading days. Well, once it recovered and then started to fall apart back again at the beginning of this year, it's been a much more orderly disintegration. And the market has fallen farther than it did back in August, but it's taken more time to do it. And so consequently, markets generally move in symmetry. So if it took a long time to get down, it's probably going to have to have a long period of consolidation and then take a long time to get back up. We've transitioned from an acute downturn where we had very abrupt prices falling in August to more of a chronic downturn right now where prices on the S&P 500 are consistently staying below 1950. Ah, but I digress. Oh, one thing I have to bring up about market personality. Last month, I was at a local investor meeting here in Salt Lake City. With this particular group, we get together uh, generally once a month, and we talk about investor business daily methods and trading strategies. It's called IBD Meetup. Uh, if you're not familiar with those, you know you hear me talk about the Investor's Business Daily newspaper all the time. Investors.com is a website. I'm a big proponent of William O'Neill. One of the things that has come out of that newspaper is that they do sponsor local IBD meetup groups. So if you're not familiar with that, Google it. You can go to meetup.com and look for IBD. There's most likely a meetup in your area if you live in a, you know, a town or a city of, of just about any type of population. Uh, but in any case, I was at our meeting last month. I'm really passionate about market personality. And I was trying to describe it to somebody and I got a little carried away with myself and I was relating it to a man and a woman relationship or a husband and a wife type thing. And I, and I kept making the point over and over saying, you know, if this particular situation happened, that would not be a good time to tell your wife that she looks fat in that dress. I said this a number of times. There were mostly men at the meeting. There were a few ladies, but there were mostly men. And so I would just say in that to stress a point. Well, after I'd said it a number of times, I'm sure it had grated on some of the people's nerves. And so one of the very nice women that were there, she turned around and she looked at me and she said, John, when is it ever a good time to tell your wife that she looks fat in that dress? So now you know why John is always in the doghouse. In any case, let's get back to the market. So the personality has definitely moved out of this buy on the dips and move on to new highs. We're in a very stagnant, what appears to maybe be a secular downward trend. And that's not only on the S&P 500, but even the markets that were doing well, things like the NASDAQ, they're starting to fall apart now. The leadership, things like Facebook and Google and, and many others that were holding up the market indexes, well, they're all starting to break down. And so you've heard me say over these period of weeks, how do we judge this market? We can look at the leadership that's holding things up. There was uh, you know, a group of stocks, and then they kept getting more narrow, more shallow, and we got down to a handful of stocks that were holding up all the overall indexes. Many sectors of the economy had been down 10 or 20%. Now those sectors of the economy are down, you know, in the neighborhood of 20 to 30%. You know, things like the small cap stocks, the Russell 2000 is down 30% from its highs. Obviously, stocks in the energy sector are down well below that, some of them 50 to 80%. Some of these IPOs and high-flying biotech stocks, pharmacy stocks that had a great story but not so much on earnings, you know, they're down 50 to 80 percent. 
but the general indexes up to the last eight weeks have been holding up fairly well because these indexes are uh, tend to be weighted towards market capitalization. So when you have these huge mega companies like Apple and Google and Facebook that are doing fairly well, it masks the overall poor performance of the hundreds or maybe thousands of stocks down below the water level of the iceberg that are not performing well. Well, that started to break down to the point now where this past week, that leadership is really dwindling. So just to give you a quick example of some stocks that you know were really fashionable, favorable stocks that people loved, they're starting to really fall apart. And I'm again, I'm not even going to talk about the energy sector. I'm not going to talk about biotech, which is falling apart. I'm not going to talk about things like the MLPs, the Master, master Limited Partnerships, these pipelines that three or four years ago people were enamorated with that have just totally disintegrated and many of them have had to lower their dividends. I'm not even going to talk about those. Let's just talk about some really well-known headline type stocks that, that just six months ago people loved. Disney is down over 23% from its high. Apple is now down over 30%. Tesla is down over 44% and LinkedIn, and this is very, you know, much associated with that type of social media like Facebook. You know, LinkedIn is really the Facebook of the business world and it's also was thought to be recession proof because it, it has done pretty well coming out of the recession. It tends to be a place where professional people flock to during a recession because they're looking for jobs and so there's a lot of activity there and, and then consequently a lot of, you know, advertising. So LinkedIn is down over 61% from its high. It was down over 40% just yesterday on Friday alone. Now you have to ask yourself, if, if LinkedIn can fall 40% in one day, why couldn't that happen to a somewhat related stock like Facebook when you have a company like Facebook with a very high valuation, something like 100 times earnings? We talked about that in the previous episode. You know, go back two weeks ago, people were saying, Hey, LinkedIn is worth this extra, you know, value. It's, it's worth paying 50 or 60 or 70 times earnings. Well, not so much today. It's down over 61% from its recent high. So the market personality has definitely shifted. These large technology and cloud-based and social media type companies that were holding up the whole index can no longer do it. So what kind of personality is the market in? Well, I think it's in a very defensive posture, and this is not something that just happened this week. This is something I've you know, basically been talking about for the last eight weeks. But the level of sector rotation where more and more volume and higher prices keep moving into safe harbor or what would be considered safe sectors of the stock market or the economy, that is increasing at a very high relative strength. So these are sectors of the economy like the utility stocks, consumer staples, the telecoms. These are basically uh, tend to be large blue chip companies whose sales are, are you know, fairly stable. They, they, can, they can vary, but generally they're fairly stable. Um, that's why, you know, we call them consumer staples. They're things like the telecoms, the utilities. You know, you have to use water. You have to use electricity. You're going to use your telephone and your cell phone. You're going to go out and buy clothes and bread and milk, your Starbucks coffee, you know, things of those nature, things you can't live without. That's why companies like Philip Morris, that uh, tobacco stocks or Constellation brands that sell alcohol, they've been doing well really for the last uh, probably six to eight months. 
But again, the relative strength has been even more uh, drastic or more impressive in the last couple weeks. Now, there's good news and bad news in all this. Had you moved into some of these areas that are more defensive in nature, some of these areas that are going to be more stable, you probably could have done fairly well. I mean, even a company like McDonald's, which had been performing poorly for four or five years, it started to do better going back about three or four months ago. It tends to fall into that consumer staple kind of category where, yes, it is a a discretionary expense. You know, it's a restaurant, it's eating out, but it's McDonald's. It's, you know, you're going to get something for five to seven bucks. It's inexpensive. And so there was also a turnaround story associated with that. And that stock has performed, again, very well in the last, say, four months. However, even just on Friday, that was down over 4%. You see, the problem with these defensive stocks or these, uh, you know, consumer staple type stocks, the utility stocks, institutional investors flock to them in times of trouble because they have a a stable beta. They're not going to necessarily fall apart as much as the general market. They're certainly not going to deteriorate as quickly as a high-flying stock or as a, an aspirational stock like a GoPro. You know, a GoPro is going to go down 80%. Well, utilities may only go down 20%. But see, what I want to stress here is that utilities can still go down 20%. It isn't like they're going to go up if the economy truly does fall apart. And so if you look at, uh, you know, for example, a large, very liquid, very respected utility exchange traded fund, something like uh, the Guggenheim 500, I think it's uh, RYU, I think is the ticker symbol on that. Relative strength over the past four to eight weeks, yeah, it's doing very well. But again, it's not immune to a downturn. And even though it's doing well over the past few weeks, it depends, like anything, when you bought it. It's still down something like, you know, 12, maybe 13%, maybe even 14% from its recent high just back early in 2015. So on a long-term performance basis, uh, you know, over the last 12 months, it's really not doing any better than the general indexes. And likewise, if you look back far enough in history, you'll see that while it probably held up better than many stocks or many sectors during the meltdown in 2008, But the financial crisis definitely took a toll on it. During the recession, it'll peak to trough from its high in, say, 2007 to its low in March of 2009. That utility sector was down, you know, something in the neighborhood, you know, peak to trough, extreme to extreme, a good 50%. So it it really didn't uh, perform or wasn't necessarily much safer than the overall market during certain periods of the uncertainty. Right now, if you look at some of these sectors, you know, like the utilities or individual stocks, some of the blue chips like Philip Morris or or J&J or Procter & Gamble, yeah, they're paying a nice dividend and relatively they're holding up okay. But if things really get bad, these things are going to fall apart too. And that's what I want to stress to you. That's the point I want to make about this sector rotation. Philip Morris is paying a very nice dividend right now, close to 4%, something like 3.7, 3.8%. But it's also trading at a valuation of well over 20, probably around 21 times earnings. And that's on a company that is lucky to see a 1% growth in top line revenue. Well, how can you pay 20 or 21 times earnings on, you know, that high of a valuation on a stock that's, that's growing at half the rate of real GDP? I mean, it makes no sense at all, but it's just that fear is moving these large institutional investors into these safe haven sectors, into these defensive sectors. 
Procter & Gamble, another consumer staple type company, considered to be very safe, just like Philip Morris, has a, a very high valuation around 21 times earnings. And yet their top line sales are not only worse than general GDP or, or worse than the pathetic growth that we saw at Philip Morris, they're actually negative. Last quarter, Procter & Gamble's sales their top-line revenue sales were down over 9%. Over the last three years, they've been averaging negative 5% growth per year. So how do you justify paying 21 times earnings to own a company that's showing negative top-line sales growth and even in their case, very sketchy uh, bottom-line profit growth? Well, you do that because you think they're stable and, they're, and they do pay a stable dividend. But what are you putting on the line to get that 3% dividend? Had you been, you know, buying and holding Procter and Gamble over the last 12 months, yeah, you made maybe a 3% dividend, but you lost over 5% in the principal value of the stock. And that's even after it's recovered here in, in the past uh, few weeks, few months because of people flocking to it. So earlier in the year, you would have lost even more than that just to own this uh, company that supposedly is a safe haven uh, defensive type sector. Well, you're probably saying, well, John, if this is such a crazy strategy, why do all these big institutional investors do it? Why do they flock into these defensive sectors? Well, see, it makes sense if we're just in a little bit of troubled times. You see, if, you know, if things, if this is just a little, a very small economic storm and things are going to blow over, then it makes sense to park your money in these big blue chip stocks, which you know are not going to go out of business, and they are paying anywhere from a 2 to a 4% dividend. But what you have to be concerned with is what if this is not just a little economic storm? You know, what if this is just not a little hiccup or a little a road bump? And I'm not chicken little. I'm not concerned about an economic meltdown or any other type of gloom and doom scenario. But I am a student of history, and I've studied the stock market. I've been investing in the stock market for over 30 years, and I know that you don't have to have an economic collapse to have major downtrends in the stock market. In fact, they normally happen every three to seven years. You get a very substantial pullback of 20% or more. Now, that hasn't happened since 2009 because we live in a world that's been flooded by cheap money and low interest rates from not only the Federal Reserve in the United States, but from all the global central banks. And can this party keep going on forever? Well, I don't know. Maybe it can, but look at what's just happened in the last eight months. Look at the personality shift in this market, right? This is definitely not a good time to tell your wife she looks fat in that dress. And while I'm not worried about an economic collapse, I certainly think it's within the realm of possibility, certainly within the realm of historical stock market performance, that this market could easily drop another 10 to 15% from here. Easy. In fact, if the market dropped another 10% from here, it would really not even be at bargain basement prices. It would pretty much be at fair value for most stocks. So that's my concern. But then you're saying, well, John, you are being a chicken little because all these smart guys on Wall Street, you know, they're definitely smarter than a guy like you. So why are they flocking to these defensive sectors? Well, see, that's the little dirty secret that most people aren't aware of. And I've mentioned it before here in the podcast, but I think it's worth bringing up again. You know that I'm not a big proponent of buy and hold. I think that you should buy when assets are appreciating and sell them either before they start to depreciate or as they are depreciating and then move on to the next one. 
That's the whole concept of why I'm a swing trader and why I tend to follow trends. You know, I think it was a great idea to own gold from about the year 2000 all the way up to the year 2011. But from 2011 to present times, well, owning gold was not such a good idea. It has nothing to do with gold. has nothing to do with the intrinsic value. It has only to do with the fact of appreciating assets versus depreciating assets. Gold was appreciating from 2000 to 2011. It had about a 10-year bull market. And consequently, it hit a peak, and for the last five years, it's been in decline. So not a good time to own it now. Same thing with oil. Oil had a very nice run from about 2000 to 2008, but since 2008, it's been abysmal. You don't want to own gold when it's in a downtrend. You don't want to own Google stock when it's in a downtrend. You don't want to own utilities or technologies or any sector when they're in a downturn. You only want to own any asset when it's appreciating. Ah, but I digress. So here's here's the deal on sector rotation. So why are these really smart guys on Wall Street, if they're such brainiacs, if they're masters of the universe, then why are they willing to hold depreciating assets during these troubled times? You know, why are they moving into something like Philip Morris or, or Procter & Gamble just to get that little 2 or 3 or 4% dividend when overnight the stock could drop by that much or more? You know, certainly in a week or in a month, if we move into more of a correction like we're in or into a bear market, those stocks, as well as the overall economy, they're going to drop in value 10 to 15 to 20% from here. So why would they take that risk? Well, here's the dirty little secret. One of the main reasons you have a sector rotation into these defensive areas in times like this is because large institutional investors, they have to remain invested. Go look at your pension fund and the prospectus that they send you, or go look at one of the mutual funds that you own. And when you dig down into the little small print, it'll say things like, the governance of this fund is directed to, you know, this particular sector of stocks or this portion of the economy, or it's designed to mimic this particular index, and the fund is chartered to be no more than like 5% in cash, or it'll say it has to be at least 90% invested. And so by mandate, by law, by regulation, these retirement funds and, and mutual funds and large pension funds institutional funds, all of them, they generally are required to remain 100% invested. And so these rotation into defensive type stocks and into lower risk segments of the economy, they move into those sectors because they have no other choice. I mean, imagine you're living in Oklahoma and there's a storm warning. You know you're going to get hit by a tornado. Well, you just can't simply get in your car and drive over to Colorado right? You're stuck where you are. And so you have to hunker down and you get down into your basement or you get down in the root cellar or you move down into the storm shelter and you wait out the storm. And you don't do that because it's the safest place on the face of the earth. You do that because that's the only place you have to go. Well, these large pension funds and, and mutual funds and institutional investors, they have to remain fully invested in the stock market. And so when troubled times like this come up, even if it's going to be a Category 5 hurricane, well, they have to just get down into the basement. They can't leave. They can't move out and move into cash. And I say that this is a dirty little secret because I believe this is the main reason that Wall Street promulgates the myth of buy and hold. You see, they basically are required to buy and hold 
their hands are bound. They're stuck in owning some type of position in the stock market, whether it's a good time or a bad time. You, on the other hand, as an individual investor, and guys like me as independent money managers, we can do whatever we want. If we see storm clouds on the horizon, we can move to cash. If we are in a uh, an asset class that's depreciating, we can sell it and move on to another one, or again, simply just move to cash. Well, these large institutional investors can't do that. They are forced to buy and hold. And in my opinion, maybe my cynical outlook on the world, that's why I think they try and push buy and hold on you. So what does the future hold? I have no idea. I can't see the future. I don't know if we're headed to, you know, a Category 5 type hurricane or if this is just going to be a little thunderstorm that blows over. We'll have to wait and see. But even the magnitude of the event in and of itself isn't the whole problem. You know, I remember back to Katrina, I think 2005, that was only like maybe a Category 3 storm. It wasn't the worst storm that ever hit the U.S. It wasn't the most violent. But what happened? There was systemic failure. The storm hit at the same time that the levees broke and the dams and the dikes and all that. They all fell apart at once. It also happened to be, you know, under sea level. So that wasn't a good thing. It was a, it was a city built in a, in a bowl. So there were just a lot of series of events that took place at once. It didn't have to be the worst storm in history. It just had to occur when there was other systematic failure. And so, you know, right now as we look to China, does China have to have a total economic collapse? Well, no, not necessarily. But if it does have a rough patch here, and if its growth rates can't maintain that 5 or 6% that supposedly they're at, maybe if they drop down to 1% or 2 or 3%, while that isn't a total economic collapse, that can still interact with other problems around the world to create systematic failures. That's why we're seeing such depressed prices in commodities and in oil. And consequently, we're seeing very fragile parts of the banking system, the global banking system. Take a look at Deutsche Bank. The European banking system not doing so well. And I'm not talking about Southern Europe. You know, we know things are a disaster in Greece. The banks in Spain, Italy, Portugal, they're not doing so good. Well, look at Deutsche Bank. They have something like 30, 40 billion dollars in revenue one of the major investment banks on the face of the earth, their current performance is worse than the lows that they hit back in early 2009 coming out of the financial crisis. They're down something like 80% just off of their high since the financial crisis, like 70-80%. If you look at their price prior to the financial crisis, they're down something like over 90% from their all-time high back in you know 2006-2007. And so you have to ask yourself, if a major player like Deutsche Bank right now is currently trading at lows lower than the depths of the Great Recession, is there something going on here that's more than just a little thunderstorm? Are we headed for that Category 5 hurricane? And will there be systemic and systematic failure to further complicate the crisis? Okay, I have no way of knowing, but that's why I'm concerned. And for now, that's why I continue to remain in cash. Now, I don't want to close this podcast on a sour note because I am actually extremely optimistic about the future. I think that there are going to be opportunities in 2016 to make an extraordinary amount of money. So this is not a time to be depressed. This is not a time to be chicken little or to be an ostrich and stick your head in the sand. This is a time to build your watch list, keep your powder dry, and wait for the right opportunity. 
And so, as always, I'll close out today's episode by saying this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.